All right, First Timothy chapter number 3, and I'd like to read verse number 16, just one verse, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. The Bible says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Let's read that once again. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd bless the message this morning, not because of the messenger, but because of your precious word. I pray that you give me the unction and power that's needed in the preaching in such a way, Lord, that would not lift me up, but would lift up your Son, Jesus Christ. We know that if He is to increase, we must decrease this morning. So, Father, help us to get ourselves out of the way, to get our flesh under subjection, and, Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, show them their need of Calvary, Lord, before it's everlasting too late. I pray they come to know your Son as their Savior. And speak to each heart that which would glorify you the most. Father, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for Calvary. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Uh, You know, as I read this passage in 1 Timothy chapter number 3, I'm very conscious that today is Memorial Day. I don't always preach a message in keeping with a holiday. But this passage of Scripture struck in my mind as I thought about what we're remembering today. Uh, You know, I want to share with you an anecdote. It's said, tradition says, that in April of 1863 in Columbus, Mississippi, after decorating the graves of her two sons who died representing their beloved Southland, an elderly woman walked to two mounds of dirt at the corner of the cemetery to place memorial flowers there also. Friends shouted to her, said, what are you doing? Those are the graves of two Union soldiers. Softly, that compassionate mother said, I know it is. And I also know that somewhere in the north, a mother or young wife mourns for them as we do for ours. And that loving deed is believed to have set in motion our celebration that we're celebrating tomorrow known as Memorial Day. It's a day to remember those that have died for something that is a greater cause than themselves alone. Those that have died for a purpose. Those that have died... For their country. And I pulled some of these figures, and you know how unreliable sometimes the information we get is, and, and only heaven can truly record those that have died and their numbers. But I wanted to share with you the numbers of casualties that uh, the U.S. has suffered in various wars. Dating back even to the Revolutionary War, America lost 25,324 soldiers. In the War of 1812, we lost 2,260 soldiers. In the Civil War, or if you're from around here, that's the War of Northern Aggression, I think. But the Civil War, we lost. And by the way, it's the bloodiest war we've ever fought because we're fighting ourselves. So both sides of casualties uh, affected us. We lost 625,000. In World War I, we lost 116,708. In World War II, we lost 400 and 7,316. 
the Korean War, we lost 36,574 in the Vietnam War. And I'm sure some in this room were uh, either fought in that arena or were, I know, uh, were enlisted during that time. We lost 58,220. In the first Gulf War, we only lost 482. But in the Iraq War, we lost 4,487. And then in the war in Afghanistan that we're still presently, to some degree, uh, invested in, we've lost 2,313. It's astounding to think about the sacrifices that our country has had to make for freedom. It's astounding to think about the families that have an empty place at the table this morning so that you and I could meet together and worship. Do you understand that this is an unusual thing? And and listen, I'm not up here to give you a patriotic speech, but there's a reason they call it the American Experiment. Do you understand that America was the first nation ever to be based upon a set of ideals, not upon geographical or ethnic distinctions? I'll give you an example. You know, if you used to ask what makes a uh, person that is uh, German, German, they would say, well, I was born in Germany. Or my parents were, so on. Uh, What makes a French person French? They were born in France. What makes a Spanish person Spanish? They were born in Spain, and so on and so forth. But you go back into the history of our country, and you'll find uh, a time when what made Americans American was that they believed in religious liberty, in property rights, in minimal government. I'm not giving a political speech this morning. You know, some people say, well, you ought to keep politics out out of the pulpit. I'm here to tell you, it's not going to be long before we're going to have politics in our pulpit via the government, whether we like it or not. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And I'm not up here to support any candidate. I had a a wise teacher that told me one time, and I won't mention who he is, but I had a wise teacher that told me one time, if you ever knew what you have to do to get to the place to run for president, you wouldn't want to vote for any of them. (laughs) And uh, I'm merely saying that we live in a country that's unique. We live in a country that is special. And uh, there's a reason that the world hates us. It's because of uh, the mentality that we have many times that our country is better. Do you know why we have that mentality? It's because our country is better. Amen? Isn't that right? I didn't know I was in here with a bunch of, uh, you know, foreign nationals this morning. Apparently I am. You fly whatever flag you want to fly, but I'm merely saying this morning that we live in a spectacular country. I know it's got its problems. I'm aware of that. Uh, as a pastor, I may be more aware of the problems our country has than even the average person would. But I'm merely saying that a great cost has been paid for us to gather here and worship this morning. Great cost has been paid for us to be able to do that. And this morning, as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I read verse 16, it struck me that on this day, as we commemorate those that have given their lives and have died for our freedom, that there is one even greater than any soldier born of this world that has given a sacrifice greater than even they have given. Now, I don't say that to diminish their service or their sacrifice. I mean, listen, I I believe we ought to uphold, I believe we ought to treat with nobility those that have fought for our freedoms, but I'm merely saying not to diminish them, but to exalt this other soldier that when I read about him in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I see a soldier that paid a vast sacrifice for you and I. It's interesting the language that's used here. It says, "...without controversy..." 
Great is the mystery of godliness. We read that word of mystery, uh, that word mystery, and I don't know, we think of Scooby-Doo or Nancy Drew or something like that, but that word mystery in the word of God is not used uh, to denote something that is concealed, but rather something that at one time was not manifest, but now has been brought into light. And what it's speaking of is the plan of redemption, the plan by which God uh, would accomplish godliness and holiness in the lives of sin-depraved and sin sin-fallen human beings. So in other words, if I could put it this way, God says, and without controversy, great is my battle plan. Could I put it to you that way? My plan to defeat death and sin. My plan to redeem a sin-fallen race. Great is that plan. And I began to think about our Lord and Savior. You know, Exodus chapter 15 and verse 3 tells us that the Lord is a man of war. I know we live in a time where uh, if you recognize the validity and need for war, they call you a warmonger. But the truth of the matter is, as long as we live in a world with conflict, we'll live in a world with battles. That's just a reality. And I know there's some that would have you to believe that we're just a heartbeat away from extinguishing war as a barbaric act. But I would remind you that the holy inspired Word of God says uh, that as time would get closer for the appearing of Jesus Christ, that there would be wars and rumors of wars. I'm here to tell you that the war is not over yet. The Bible teaches uh, that warfare is a way of life. And uh, Brother Ron spoke about it in his poem that uh, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, were given the, uh, the promised land, but they had to fight and they had to take it. And that's true. If you read through the book of Joshua, you find a book of warfare. It's just battle after battle after battle. And the Bible teaches that it was the Lord, their God, that went before them into war, that fought their battles for them. David said this uh, when he was faced with Goliath. He said that the battle is the Lord's. And the Bible teaches us that the Lord is skilled in warfare, that war is not something that is foreign or unfamiliar to Him. But you know, as we read through the Old Testament, this Lord that's spoken of, Jehovah, uh, in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews uh, concerning Jesus Christ, that in Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. Do you understand that Philip looked at the Lord and said, Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And our Lord said, Philip, have I been so long time with you, and you have not known me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The Bible teaches if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And what I'm saying is this, if the Lord is a man of war, then our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is a man of war. The book of Isaiah speaks of Him coming from Basra with his uh, vesture uh, dipped in blood in the book of uh, Revelation. Don't get nervous when I say this, but do you know the book of Revelation, chapter 16, speaks of him coming upon a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood, with a name written on his thigh, King of kings, Lord of lords, and with a sharp two-edged sword proceeding out of his mouth to destroy the nations. Uh, I'm not talking about history when I say that. I'm talking about prophecy when I say that. I'm saying that Jesus Christ is a man of war. We all like to see him as the meek Galilean, and he was. But do you understand that even when he was the meek Galilean, even when he was the Son of Man as well as the Son of God, even then there was a warfare taking place. And I want to note just about three things that I think we see in this passage that we're called to remember about our Lord and about his warfare. First, I see in this passage that we are to remember his appearing. Look what it says. God was manifest in the flesh. 
Oh my, if we could unwrap all the mystery within those words, if we could unpack everything that that little statement says, oh, it'd take us ten eternities to sit here and preach just upon the vast wisdom and mystery and wonder of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That God, the God of the universe, the Creator God, the One that stepped out upon nothing, pulled back the veil of darkness, and from nothing flung everything into existence and spoke it by His Word to know that He walked amongst men. What a miraculous fact. We're called to consider this truth. And I want you to notice three things about it. First off, when He became man. When He left heaven, He left His heavenly address. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean, He left a place that was all about Him to come to a place where He was hated. I'm saying that He left a place. You know, the Bible talks about in the book of Psalms, uh, the Lord says, hey, if I was hungry, I would not ask of you. He said, behold, all of the earth is mine. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Do you understand that when Christ was in heaven, He was in a place of comfort. He was in a place of glory. But just like any good soldier, when they go to fight the fight, they don't get to do it from their living room couch. They don't get to do it from the comforts of their own homes. Some of you may have fought in wars in your life. And to do it, you had to leave your place of comfort to go fight the war. Our Lord was no different. The Bible teaches us that He left heaven. Oh my, I I just, I can't even wrap my mind around the truth of that thought. That He left heaven to be born in a manger and to dwell amongst men. I would say that He left His heavenly address, but I would say also that He left His heavenly apparel. Some of you, if you were ever in the Army or the Navy or the Marines, whatever it may have been, when you joined up, one of the first things they did was they took your civilian clothes and they gave you a uniform. You see, there was a certain apparel that you had to wear. There was an appearance you had to adopt if you were going to be able to fight the fight. Our Lord was no different. The Bible teaches us in Philippians uh, chapter number 2, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. The Bible teaches us it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. The book of Galatians says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. He was in heaven robed in all of his righteousness, all of his glory, robed in pure divinity with not a shred of weakness, with not a shred of temptation, with not a shred of suffering. But if he was going to accomplish the mission God was sending him on, he was going to have to be made flesh and bone like you and I. The incarnation was a very real and literal event. Do you understand that? We're not talking about some fairy tale that someone wrote to convey an idea. God literally was manifest in the flesh. The Bible says in John chapter number 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it goes on to describe this eternal Word, but down in verse 14, hey, it gets real interesting because it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. 
and we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm saying this, if He was going to redeem us, He couldn't do it uh, while uh, being shrouded in His divinity. He had to take upon Him the likeness of men. I'm not saying he removed any of his deity or divinity. I'm not saying he was any less God than he had been before. But you understand, he had always been 100% God. Uh, but there in Bethlehem, when he was born of a virgin... Oh, I hope you believe he was born of a virgin. There's a lot of folks out there that don't. But the Bible teaches he was born of a virgin. I've heard some people say, well, you know that Hebrew word there in the book of Isaiah, that's supposed to be translated as young woman. Well, what does that mean, anything? How uncommon is it for a young woman to be with child today, huh? Right? Right? I'm okay, ain't I? Isn't that right? It's not uncommon at all. How would that be a sign to anyone? But oh, now one that's born of a virgin. That's miraculous. When he was born of a virgin, uh, he became a 100% man as well as a 100% God. You say, that math don't add up. Well, take it up with the Lord. Ralph, you're doing that again, I can tell. That's you, isn't it? <laughs> How's that? Is that any good? I still sound bad, though, don't I? Turned up a little bit more, Nicholas. All right, am I annoying yet? Good, okay, that's where I want to be. He became a 100% man. As well as 100% God, he had to veil and robe himself in flesh. So we see that he laid aside his heavenly address. He laid aside his heavenly apparel, but I believe also he laid aside his heavenly adoration. I know that we like to believe, and, and some of you may be tired of me saying this, but it's still true. I, we like to believe that heaven's like a big fishbowl, and everybody's just a looking in and a looking down on us. We like to believe that. And if you want to believe that, listen, I mean, I, I'm not going to rain on your parade. You go ahead and believe that way. But when I read in the book of Revelation, nobody's paying attention to me. Everybody's gathered around the throne. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world and the only one that is worthy to open the book. That's who everyone's paying attention to. And I don't believe that just started when he ascended back up into heaven. I believe it's always been about Jesus Christ. You know what he said in the book of John, chapter number 17? He's praying to his Father, and he says, uh, Father, uh, he says, glorify me with the glory that we had before the world began. When he left heaven, he was leaving a place where the name of Jesus brought shouts and praise. When he left heaven, I mean, if the name of Jesus was uttered, all of a sudden there'd be a buzz in the streets, and it's like this, uh, the uh, rocks and the trees and the stones and the ground would begin to cry out in praise and honor. You say, oh, I don't believe that, preacher. Well, that's what he told him in the book of Matthew. They were praising him and glorifying him, and there was a bunch of religious crowd. And it's always the religious crowd that gets upset with people getting emotional over Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about wildfire. I'm not talking about a show of the flesh. But hey, the Bible teaches shouting. So I don't know about that. Well, when he comes, he's coming with a shout. In heaven, there's a shout. Uh, whenever he came to this earth the first time, there was a shout. The angels uh, appeared in the heavens and began to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. I don't think they were singing it like... No, I think there was some excitement, some jubilation about it. And, and he uh, looked at that religious crowd and they said, well, what are these men doing praising you? He said, they didn't know Jesus. And when you don't know Jesus, you can't figure out why people praise him. 
They said, what are you doing? Praise him. And he looked at him. He said, listen to me. If these held their voices, uh, the rocks and the trees would cry out and praise unto me. Isn't that sad? Isn't it sad? You're going to get to heaven one day and the Lord's going to have to say, I had to have your trees out in the yard doing your praising for you because you wanting." No, he left a place when he left heaven. They uttered his name. I mean, the leaves would begin to flutter. I mean, the birds would begin to sing. You say there's birds in heaven. I don't know if there is, but if there was, there's singing. I'm saying that heaven came alive at the name of Jesus. What does it say in Isaiah 53, 3? When he came to this world, he was despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It says, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The Bible says that he came unto his own and his own received him not. The Bible says that light came into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I'm trying to get you to understand. By the way, isn't that how it is with most soldiers? Some of you have fought in war. Some of you know enough of history to know that nine times out of ten, there's always a faction of people that hate that force that's liberating them. Isn't that true? There's always a faction of it. I mean, and the sad thing in Vietnam, it was our people that did that. God help us. It was our people that did that. Let me tell you something. If you, if you fought in the Vietnam War, there's a level of respect I have for you. And I'm not diminishing anybody that fought in any other war. But if you fought in the Vietnam War, uh, there's, there's a little bit notch higher respect in my mind for you because of what you had to put up with when you came home. God help our country. Uh, listen, if uh, the, the problems we have today, if it wasn't due to nothing else other than the way we treated our soldiers after that war, we'd still deserve it. That's pitiful. That's sorry. A lot of times when a soldier goes to a place and he's trying to liberate a group of people, or an army goes to a place and they're trying to liberate them, trying to help them to a greater way of life, there's usually a faction that hates that occupying force. And that's no different with our Lord and Savior. When He appeared in this world, there was a hatred men had for Him. They didn't like the offense of the cross. A Savior showed up and it reminded them they were sinners and they didn't like that. There's a lot of people going to die and go to hell today because they reject Jesus Christ. They don't like that He's a Savior because then they have to admit they're sinners. They'd rather do without a Savior as long as they don't have to admit they're a sinner. But they do need a Savior today, as they needed one then. He lay aside that adoration that He had in heaven that He might come and reach men. We see that we're to remember His appearing. But I want you to notice a second thing. And I thought about Hebrews 2.9 when I read this, let me read Hebrews 2, 9 to you, and I think you'll understand what I mean. The Bible says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. You say, when was that? Well, that's when he was incarnated. That's when he came to this earth, when he suffered and died for our sins. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. But what happens when a soldier comes home, or what should happen when they come home? What happens when they show some great act of, uh, of uh, valiancy or of bravery and they come home? It ought to be that our country should take and pin medals on them and decorate them. Isn't that true? Some of you may have had a daddy or a granddaddy or a great-granddaddy even, and, and somewhere at home you've got a box full of medals from where when they came home, they decorated that soldier to show that they had accomplished something. What does it say? who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, how do we see him? Crowned with glory and honor. 
Listen, I mean, this world may not recognize the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, but I'd have you know heaven recognized the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. What does our text say? It says God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels. This tells me that God took notice of our Lord. Now, I want you to notice three things I think the Lord noticed. First off, I would say that the Lord noticed his perfect service. You know, Christ said, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And the Bible teaches us that whenever Christ was born, I quoted it earlier, He was born under the law that He might fulfill the law. We think of Jesus as being very westernized. But you understand that Jesus, if you had walked with Him, you would have seen Him as the absolute uh, perfect and epitome of what a Jew should be. He kept every facet of the law that God commanded and demanded. He did everything righteously. There was not a sin. You know, the Bible says that uh, in him was no sin. He did no sin. He knew no sin. The Bible teaches not just that he had no sin nature, but that he also committed no sin. The Bible calls him a uh, precious lamb without blemish and without spot. I'm telling you, when Christ walked this earth for 33 and a half years, he did it perfectly. Perfectly. When God looked and examined the life of Christ to see whether it be worthy to the Atone for the sins of man. He saw that it was perfect. There wasn't a single point missing from his life. There wasn't a single T that had been uncrossed or I that had been undotted. Everything about his life was perfect. He was seen, watched, observed from heaven. I believe because of his perfect service. But I believe also because of his perfect sacrifice. You see, when it talks about being justified in the Spirit, that is speaking about His earthly life. But I believe it's also speaking about His sacrificial death. Uh, you know, the Bible teaches us in Isaiah 53 uh, that the Lord, when He saw the travail of His soul, the Bible says He was satisfied. When Christ died on Calvary for your sins and my... Let me tell you something, that's one of the reasons. And, I, and oh, I hope I don't make anybody mad, but if I do, I'm just going to have to do it. Because this is right, and it'll always be right. I loathe the idea of works salvation. There's nothing you can do to add to the finished work of Christ on Calvary. It's perfect. And when you try to say salvation plus baptism, you're saying baptism can do what Christ's cross couldn't. When you say uh, that, that salvation, that faith, uh, plus good works, you're implying your good works can do what Christ couldn't. You're implying there must be something added to the work of Calvary. But I would remind you, my friend, that when Christ said it is finished, it was finished. There's no room for argument. There's no room for debate. And listen to me. It doesn't matter if you gather together the collective denominations of the world to shout and to tout their good works before heaven and to proclaim that their baptism is better or their baptism is righteous or their good works are sufficient. It won't change that statement. When He said it is finished, it was finished. Every other religion in the world proclaims to men that something must be done. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Some of you may be sitting here today asking, what must I do? What must I do? What must I do? And there was a rich young ruler that came to the Lord one day and said, what must I do that I might inherit eternal life? And he said, keep all the commandments. Keep all of them. And that young man said, this have I 
done, I have kept these from my youth up. He was lying, by the way. The book of 1 John teaches that. If any man say he hath uh, not sinned, he, uh, he uh, maketh God a liar, and his word is not in him. He's deceived himself, and the truth is not in him. But he said, I've kept them all. I've kept every one of them. And the Lord said, all right, do this. Take everything you've got and sell it and give it to the poor and follow me. Uh, some of you, that's confused you, if you as you've read that because you thought, well, does that mean I need to sell everything and follow Jesus to be saved? No, what he was saying is this. He looked at that man and he said, this is the standard that you're to live up to. And that young man said, well, I've lived up to it. And the Lord knew he hadn't. He said, all right, you say you've lived up to that standard. Then why don't you follow me? I am the standard and live the way I do. The Bible says that young man went away sorrowfully. And there's some that are asking, what must I do? What must I do? What must I do? And I'd have you know that when Christ died upon Calvary, when he said it is finished, uh, and I don't, listen, I'm not a Hebrew, I'm not a Greek guy. Old Tom Malone used to always say that I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew, and a little Greek runs a deli and a little Hebrew runs a dry cleaner, and that's me. I mean, I, I struggle with the English language, let alone the, the Hebrew and Greek, but I know enough to know that that Greek word is one word, and it literally means finished, done. While the rest of the world says, what must I do? Christ says, it's been done. While churches around say, what must I do? Christ says, it's been done. When that thief on the cross looked around and he didn't know what to do, Christ said, it's been done. It's been done. If you'll only accept the perfect sacrifice of Calvary. But I think not only his perfect sacrifice, but I think that one of his accomplishments is his perfect Salvation. The Bible says uh, here in 1 Timothy 3.16, He was preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world. That's the kind of salvation that we have. It implies in this passage when it says, preached unto the Gentiles, that the Jews had rejected Him. And the Bible teaches that. Paul tried to go unto the Jews in the book of Acts and uh, finally he got fed up. They wouldn't believe him. They wouldn't call upon uh, Jesus Christ. So he shook his clothes off. He shook his shoes off towards him. He says, yeah, I'm free from your blood. I'm going to the Gentiles. And the Bible teaches that we have a whosoever will salvation. Jew or Gentile, Greek or barbarian, poor or rich. You can believe on Jesus Christ. That's the salvation that he accomplished. I must hurry. I want to show you one more thing. I believe we're not only to remember his appearing and to remember his accomplishments, but I believe we're to remember his ascension. Look what it says at the end of the passage. One phrase, received up into glory. Acts chapter 1 records this for us. And I want to show you just three things I believe the Lord wants to draw our attention to. And one of them is found in the use of that word glory. I believe that the Lord wants us to notice the glory of His ascension. You know, I think sometimes, uh, how do I want to put this? As we look at the life of Christ, we look at the life of Christ through 2,000 years of Western Christianity. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I believe sometimes we miss things. And uh, if I was to ask you, did Jesus Christ raise from the dead and ascend up into glory? Of course, you'd say, well, yes, the Bible teaches it. Whether you believed or not, you'd still say it because that's what people say. Yes, I believe that. I recognize that. I acknowledge that. But what was implied by his ascension? I see two things. I want to say that the first thing we see implied is an accomplished task. He was received up into glory. Why? Because his work on earth had been accomplished. It was done. There was nothing more for him to do now. 
And uh, you say, preacher, that don't mean anything to me today. What does that do? What does that apply to my life? I'll tell you what applies, how it applies to your life. Do you remember in John chapter number 4 when Christ is talking to the woman at the well? And you know what uh, she says uh, to him? Uh, she says, when Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. And Christ says, I am he. The Bible says in John chapter number 11, uh, there when uh, Mary or when Martha met our Lord and Savior after her brother Lazarus had died, and our Lord looked at her and said, uh, Lazarus, thy brother shall live, believest thou this? And she said, Yea, Lord, I know that he shall live again uh, at the last day at the resurrection. And he looked at her and he said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though we were dead, yet shall he live. What I'm trying to say is this, the accomplished task of the Savior lets us understand that there's nothing more for Him to do. The ball is in our court to believe on Him, to call on Him. Uh, he doesn't have to prove anything to us. He doesn't have to show anything to us. We are the lost sinners. We are the ones that are undone. He has made a way. He has paid our price. It is up to us to call upon Him. He's given us His Word. I believe an accomplished task, but I believe also the Lord receiving Him up tells us of an approved testimony. The Lord saw what He did and saw it was right. Saw it was good. Saw that it was what was needed. I believe the Lord wanting of... I mean, this is kind of a what-if theology and a why-not, and it's speculative, and you may not think it's worth a plug nickel, but I, if He hadn't been done, I don't think the Lord would have received Him back up. If it hadn't been done right, if there was something left to be done, I don't believe the Lord would have received him back up. But it tells us in Acts 1-9, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. We see the glory of his ascension. Now, don't you notice also the grace of his ascension? When he ascended up on high, what did he ascend to do? The Bible says in Romans 8:34, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right Hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. When Christ ascended up into heaven, it was to take his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of an almighty God to serve as a high priest for you and I as a fit and faithful and compassionate high priest. When you or I as saved believers, when we need a touch from heaven, when we need to get a hold of God and when God needs to get a hold of us, the Bible tells us in Roman or in uh, Hebrews chapter number four that there's a throne room of grace that we can come boldly to. You say, why is there a throne room of grace? Who's there to occupy that throne room of grace? Who's there that we go to. The Bible teaches us it's Christ that is seated at the right hand of the Father. He ascended that we might have grace in our lives. But then I want you to notice finally the gravity of his ascension. I chuckled as I thought of that word because one of the basic rules of gravity is this. What goes up must come down. Remember what it said in Acts chapter number 1, verse number 9, and I'll read it again, tells us, And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly, verse 10, toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Why does God remind us that he went away to remind us that he's coming back? The Bible teaches the imminent return of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
I, I really believe in the imminent return, too. I know a lot of people that say they believe in the imminent return, but then they're going to tell you that these signs have to be fulfilled, and those signs have to be fulfilled, and the Jews have to do this, the Jews have to do that, and they have to do this, and they have to do that. I don't know whether they're going to do this or that or not before he comes, but I know that the Bible teaches that not even the Son knows. And if the Son doesn't know, the Word doesn't know, because the Son and the Word are synonymous in nature. And so if the Word doesn't know, uh, then I know there's no way for me to know. The Bible says that we know not the hour, but we're... Uh, to uh, wait and to work and to serve and to pray and to prepare because we know not what hour uh, that the master of the house cometh. He could come at any moment. Any moment. I really believe it's imminent. And uh, some people say, well, what, what if this or that's fulfilled? Well, if, if whatever's fulfilled is fulfilled, that's fine. But Paul said, we look for the appearing of his dear son. Uh, when John said, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, I don't think he meant quickly as in 2,000 years. <laughs> I think John there on the Isle of Patmos was saying, Lord, I'd just be fine if you'd come before my pen gets done here. He wanted Jesus to come immediately. And the key difference between apostolic Christianity, and when I say apostolic Christianity, I don't mean a cult that believes not in the Trinity, but only in Jesus Christ and uh, claims in a works and a baptism salvation. When I say apostolic, that's not what I mean. That may be what this or that church means. That may be what the church up the road means. But that's not what apostolic Christianity is. When I speak of apostolic Christianity, I mean the power that the apostles had in the New Testament. Not for them to show signs and wonders that were exclusive to the apostolic age. But I'm talking about seeing souls saved. I'm talking about seeing revival. I'm talking about seeing God move. When I say apostolic Christianity, I mean Christianity the way it ought to be. And the Bible teaches for it to be the key difference between that kind of Christianity and the Christianity today is we don't have an effectual faith in the soon coming of Jesus Christ. We say we believe it. We claim we believe it. We shout we believe it. But then we go out and we don't live it. The Bible teaches uh, in the book of Second Peter, it says, Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holiness and conversation godliness? It's going to change our lives if we believe Jesus is coming back. And if you're here lost and undone without Christ... I encourage you to get in before it's too late to get in. I encourage you to get saved while you've got an opportunity to. You say, that's, that's a threat, preacher. No, that's no threat. I can't threaten you. You ain't scared of me. One thing I learned when I started pastoring is ain't nobody scared of the pastor. Amen? I mean, that's just the reality of it. No, I'm not saying it to scare you. I'm saying it to warn you. Because no matter what you think of me or us or this church or Baptist or anybody else, Jesus is coming soon. And you're not going to answer for the Baptist or for the preacher or for the hypocrite. You're going to answer for your soul. And so have you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You say, well, I've got a lot of excuses. Well, those won't mean anything in that day. Have you ever, have you ever been saved? That's the question. Do you know the Son? If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father and you don't have eternal life. But if you've got the Son, you've got both of those. And so if you're here today and you say, preacher, I'm just not sure I've ever been saved. Don't leave this place without getting it settled. You can know that you're saved before you ever walk out those double doors and never have to doubt it again by God's grace.